Hi folks, this is Jack Sirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today is April 1st, 2010. Don't worry, no April Fool's Day crap is coming for me any time this month. Uh, it is a Thursday, and uh, we are rocking on with episode 411. What are we going to talk about today? Kind of a mixed bag. I want to tell you some stuff I know personally that's going on out there in the world of healthcare. Um, not really anything to do with the new healthcare bill. Just what happens when government gets involved in healthcare? Because my wife works for an office where they take a lot of Medicaid patients and some stuff going on with there. I'm going to talk about dependence. I'm going to talk about how um, these people actually think they're being helped when they're actually being harmed. And I want to talk about a little bit about the myth of the safety net. That's what we always hear from people about how we're going to make sure we have these social programs, the social justice programs in place. They're for a safety net. And how these things are not safety nets. What they actually are is very damaging and create a dependence. And what that dependence means to us, as those systems of support begin to break down over time, I'm also going to talk to you about uh, kind of a totally different thing for a little while today. I've got a story for you on a different type of dependence out in New York City. Um, you're gonna really gonna like kick yourself when you hear this and, and go, "This can't be true. People can't really do this, but they do." It has nothing to do with survivalism in of itself, but you know we're gonna talk about that, and we're gonna talk a little bit about what the unemployment rate is and what it means to have that many people also dependent on government, and what happens if we're in a state like this and the government can no longer send the money and what that would look like. Uh, but before we do that, what we're going to do today, first of all, is what we always do, and that's uh, take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item number one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the Survival Podcast is here for you every day by their support of the show. Sponsor of the day number one today is the Lifesaver 4000 water bottle from Ready-Made Resources. If you're looking for portable water on the go that you can make anything safe to drink that's out there damn near, it's the Lifesaver 4000. Filtering down to .015 microns, inspired by the carnage seen during the tsunami, its creator came up with it as a solution that was easily portable to disaster-specific uh, areas to make sure that people could have clean water to drink. You can have it in your own home and make it part of your own prepping plans. Check out the banner at the survivalpodcast.com for more information on that. Sponsor of the day number two, Tactical Response Gear. Um, tactical Response Gear is like the, the, the crack dealer's addict for the tactically minded. Anything and everything you could want from the tactical arena is there, along with really great training DVDs on fighting rifle, fighting pistol, fighting shotgun, high-risk contactor training. And, uh, of course, from Tactical Response Gear, you can link over to Tactical Response, and you can get some real-world in-house training uh, either at James's location in Tennessee. And he also runs uh, training events across the uh, country from time to time. So check out both Tactical Response Gear and TacticalResponse.com. You can find the banner again on our website, thesurvivalpodcast.com. Um, next up, I want to remind you um, to really consider joining our, uh, our, uh, our forum. 
Our forum is probably one of the best, if not the best, preparedness forums online today. Uh, I liken it to being able to get a college education in preparedness and survivalism and agriculture and permaculture and gunsmithing and everything else for free simply by going there and being a part of the community and getting the information. It's really run very, very well. I know sometimes people think that maybe we have too strict a rules, but our rules are there for a reason. We run it as a constitutional republic, and no one is immune to the rules, even the moderators themselves. Uh, so please become a member of our forum, and I think you'll find that, like most institutions, when they're well-run and well-regulated, uh, you get the best return out of them. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Members Support Brigade. Do that. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. Um, there's about 20 members-only videos there right now that you'll get. Uh, also, when I do instructional YouTube videos, I always uh, pull an MPEG-4 video of that, put that in the Members Brigade additionally. So even though that's available on YouTube, that's also available for your iPod if you're an MSB member. There's over $100 worth of free eBooks at the Members Brigade. Those are downloadable as PDFs. You can read them on any computer, send them to a Kindle, you name it. Uh, you don't have to have a special device, though. Again, as long as you can read an Adobe PDF file, you can read these eBooks. And there's some really great ones there. Then there's discounts to about 18 different vendors. And... Uh, you're also supporting the show at 10 cents or 20 cents an episode. Um, you know, it's up to you whether or not you think this show's worth two dimes every time you listen to it. But if you do, consider joining the MSB and you get those exclusive benefits and you support the show. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Um, starting out, I don't have an article to send you to read to uh, verify this. You just have to take me at my word. But you're taking my wife at her word, which to me, that's just as good as my word. The other day, and this is, this is really going into like the healthcare industry, what happens when government gets involved in healthcare? Her office, I guess they would probably see about 30% private practice insurance and about 70% Medicaid, uh, Medicare, or, yeah, Medicare, uh, Medicaid, uh, insurance, uh, and, and what's called the CHIP program as well, which is the state's, uh, supplemental Medicaid for children. Uh, they got an audit from one of the Medicaid people. So this government bureaucrat came down to their office to audit what they were doing, and they actually did very well. They scored a 92 out of 100. And I know that any government bureaucrat inspector is going to ding you a few points, even if you've done nothing wrong, because if they don't, they don't look like they're doing their job. Um, having worked with the government enough in the past and dealing with inspections enough in the past, I can tell you that's indeed the way it works. There's always a gig or two, or the, the supervisor of the inspector says, go find one. So they did about as well as they could. There was one thing that they brought up, though, that my wife came home, and, I mean, she was steaming angry about this, and it doesn't really take any skin off her back, but it was the point. Um, as they were going through and being audited with how they handle the patients, they got to their no-shows. Now, a no-show is when the person's supposed to come in, let's say, for a well baby or a well child checkup, the basic checkup, how's the kid doing, make sure things are right, get their shots and things like that. So... They get to the stack of people that didn't show up. And she says, well, what did you do to get these people here? She said, well, first of all, we called them and set an appointment with them because it's a scheduled maintenance appointment. So they don't even have to pick up the phone and call us. We call them. Then we set the appointment and confirm it with them. Then the day before the appointment, we call them back and ask them, are you going and remind them of their appointment and confirm again that they will be here and be at our office on that day. On that day when they don't show, they don't show. And there's not really a lot we can do about it. Sometimes we follow up with a phone call, sometimes we don't, but the priority is the patients that come into the office. And the lady says, well, what you need to do, I want you to hear the way this is said, what you need to do 
is we'll give you these cards that remind them that they missed the appointment. And you guys need to mail everybody that no-shows one of these cards and tell them it's ve- that tells them it's very important that they get in here and get these well-child checkups done. So, the fact that you don't pay for medical care, not enough. The fact that you don't even have to schedule your own appointment, not enough. The fact that a staff member picks up the phone and calls you the day before your appointment, not enough. Now, they have to send you. Now, here's the thing. The federal government, in their benevolence, will give them the cards. They'll give them as many of those cards as they want. They're free. Well, they're not free, folks. You and I paid for them. Of course, they're bilingual cards. One side is English, the other is Espanol, right? Okay? So we pay for double printing on these daggone cards. But the doctor is expected now to foot the bill for the postage, and the postage is minor, Here's the thing. Somebody from the staff has to sit down, go through these things, fill out and address these cards, and send them to these people. So the doctor is supposed to absorb the cost. Now, just as my wife was leaving this morning, I said to her, Honey, I need to know something. What do you guys bill for seeing a Medicaid patient for a checkup like that? She said, I'm not exactly sure the number, but I believe it's $32. So, working your ass off in an office like that, you can put through maybe four patients in an hour like that, giving each patient about 15 minutes of the doctor's time. Now, of course, it's actually going to cost a little bit more in that time, but the doctor himself can see about four patients. You've got a nurse, a medical assistant, and a front office person in that office at the same time, working, processing that person, putting them through. So, you're dealing with a situation where the doctor, seeing four of those patients, it is billing about $120 an hour. Now, if you go out and work every day for $14 an hour or 7 or 20 or 25 or even 30 you might think $120 an hour, that's damn good money. But at $120 an hour, this doctor is paying for the building. He's paying for malpractice insurance. He's paying for the three employees. He's paying matching on their Social Security. He's paying for their health insurance, which is skyrocketing even for him, especially in a small practice. He's paying all of these expenses, and then he has to go through these hurdles, and then he has to be audited by a bureaucrat that says you're not doing enough for people that are already being given something completely for free. And if anybody out there thinks that the government takeover of health care is a good idea, all I can say is when you look at something on a small scale, it gives you a very clear indication of what will happen on a large scale if you ramp that program up. That's why in marketing we would always do test cases. So before we spent $50,000 on a marketing initiative, we would spend $500 on a marketing initiative, or maybe $5,000 if it was going to be a different type of medium that we would have to get into. And we would take that money and we would look at it, hey, we could lose this money. This is risk capital. We would spend that money and we would reserve the rest. And if the results were good, we would cautiously ramp the program up. If the results were bad, we would retweak things and retest it. And until we got a positive result, we wouldn't ramp it up. That's how a business runs. And you don't do anything else because if you fail, you fail in business, especially as a small business. And once you get too big to fail, the government apparently will bail you out. But small businesses, and I'm talking concerns of $50 million down to $50,000 a year and anything in between, generally run themselves that way. Because when when a business of that size is in danger of failing, nobody sounds the alarm, nobody comes to save you. So this practice is done And in Dave Ramsey's words, 
uh, Dave Ramsey being the commentator on debt and, and, and your money, uh, you know, that, that guy, capitalism fixes stupid. And it does. And it does every time. But government operates outside of this capitalistic system. So what we have now is a blueprint for what national health care will look like. And I'm going to kind of go out and do my little Gerald Salenti bit and do my prediction for you here. Of course, Mr. Salenti hasn't made this prediction yet. He just makes lots of predictions and then claims the ones that come true. I make a few, and then I hope to uh, point out when they come true in the future. And sometimes I hope to be wrong. Here's another one I hope to be wrong about. I believe that our Congress and our Senate is totally scared of you right now. I believe that they're terrified. I believe all of this crap in the media about how the teabag people are just nuts and uh, crazies and fringes and, and all of this stuff being done to mitigate it is, is bull, and I think they know they're in trouble. And I think that they decided that what they would do is they would pass a health care bill without the dreaded public option in it. And they would put some things in it that most people would go, yeah, that they should have done. Um, the big one being no more decline of coverage for pre-existing conditions. Now, there's a whole swarm of problems that go with that in raising the rates of insurance. Uh, but even I look at that one and go, we need to figure out what to do with people with pre-existing conditions so that they can get health insurance. Because they're the people that need it the most. And they're the ones that generally are not trying to bilk the system for Tylenol. They actually have ongoing maintenance medication stuff like adult onset diabetes would be one example, or a child with Down syndrome or these other things where they have a lifetime of maintenance requirement. And if the condition's debilitating enough, they can't work for the money, so they have this. Those are the people who need the most care. So they put stuff like that in there. And, you know, they know that that's going to be popular with people. Even the people that understand the, the, the financial problems with it go, ah, you know, I, right? Now, to pass a bill that said that, they could have used one piece of paper, not 1,600 pages of monstrosity. They could have put one piece of paper that says health insurance will no longer be, de uh, no longer be declined based on preexisting conditions. And then a little bit more legalese and done, and they could have voted on that. But So that's not why that's in there. It's not just because that was a good thing. It's because they knew it would be popular. They put all of this other rigmarole in it, and they create this, this catastrophe. Well, here's what's going to happen, folks. Mark my words. In the next two to three years, health insurance rates will skyrocket. And the Democrats will play the blame game, and the Republicans will play, play the blame game, and they will both point at each other and say it's the other one's fault. But by the time insurance goes up three to four times, people in this country will scream for the public option. They will beg for the public option. And what does that tell us? That both the Democrats and the Republicans actually want a public option for health care. I don't mean every Democrat. I don't mean every Republican. But I'm telling you, the majority of them do. And when we get one, every doctor in America will have to go through audits, just like the one my wife's uh, employer just went through. And be told things like, you need to spend time, staff, m money to send reminders to people that didn't pay for their care in the first place to tell them that they no-showed and tell them they need to come and get those very important vaccinations so that we make sure that Bear Pharmaceutical and Merck and everybody else is making their money. That's our future with healthcare. Now, why do I go into these political shows like this once in a while? Because you need to be in touch with the reality that that is our future. That's not our future tomorrow. That's maybe our future over the next six to eight years before it really begins to rear its ugly head. Uh, maybe more. It may take longer to get that done. But this was a first step. And what we need to understand is that the quality of care in this country 
is going to be adversely affected, and the accessibility of care is going to be adversely affected. Now, if you want my solution to this, I've given it in the past. There should, there should be an outright ban on current forms of health insurance. It should be illegal. If you go to a doctor and you get a basic prescription, you should pay out of pocket. And that would dry up the slush fund and the pig troughs, and cost of care would drop dramatically. And all of the paperwork and all the administrative costs and all the crap that's front-loaded into this would come out of it. And we should have health insurance for catastrophic uh, things only. So when you end up in the hospital, when you end up on uh, needing care for the rest of your life. But if your Johnny has sniffles, and it's bad enough you think he needs to go to the doctor and get you know some medication and be checked out and have the doctor listen to his chest with a stethoscope and prescribe a few things for him, you should pay for that. If we did that, we would solve 90% of the problems that we have today. I know people don't think it's that simple, but the, the simple solution is always the best. What do we do going forward? Well, before I tell you what we do going forward, let me tell you the other side of this thing. I've been hearing rattles about this, and I wanted to confirm whether this is true or not. And um, so what I've heard is that if you're on Medicaid or any of these other government assistance programs, you can get a free cell phone with 68 minutes a month preloaded onto it to, to you, for, for you so that you can you know, make calls to get your welfare check or make calls to get your food stamps or make calls and have a place to be called so that you can take Johnny to the doctor to get you know, $9 worth of Tylenol for free when it costs the taxpayers 80 bucks by the time it's over with. Uh, but I, I really never researched it. It was just one of those things that I heard, and I wondered, was it a rumor mill? Well, I've investigated it, and it's absolutely true. I am on a site right now from SafeLink Wireless, uh, enrollmentpublic.asp.x, and I am in the Texas-specific one to see what I have to do to be eligible for my free cell phone. Here is what it says. You are eligible if you receive benefits from one of the following programs. Federal Public Housing Assistance slash Section 8. So if you get a free house or a very cheap house to live in on, on con, from the taxpayers, we'll also give you a cell phone with an hour of minutes. Health benefit coverage under Children Health Insurance Plan, CHIP. That's the Texas State, basically Medicaid. Low Income Home Energy Assistance. So if you don't make a lot of money and when the taxpayers give you money to pay your electric bill, you can get a free cell phone. Medicaid, so if you don't pay for your medical care at all, you can get a free cell phone. Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, food stamps, you get a free cell phone. Supplemental Security Income, or SSI, you get a free cell phone. There you go, folks. So these are, and, and they're very strict. A form must be completed to indicate that you participate in one of these programs along with proof of program participation. Not only do you have to be eligible for food stamps, but you better damn well be getting your food stamps and using them. As long as you do that, we'll give you a free cell phone. But if you go out and start working and don't need those food stamps anymore, we'll take your free cell phone away. You know, they want to make sure they're, they're safeguarding taxpayers' money and make sure only people that really need the free cell phone get one. This is systemic. This is a problem. But I don't want you right now to think that this only affects the bottom rungs of society. We're talking about the poor people. We're talking about the people that need the safety net. We're talking, come on, you heartless, evil, conservative. I'm not a conservative. You heartless, evil, libertarian. Okay, well, you got me there. I'm, I'm a libertarian, but I know I'm heartful, heartless and evil. Let's talk about dependence of a totally different 
type of person. I'm going to do something I did yesterday. I'm going to read at least most of an article uh, on the air to you. This is called, The Kitchen is My Closet. And, uh, of course, it's in the New York Post, so it must be true. And they've got this new thing in pop culture now. I guess it's been around for a year or two. But, like, if a person is big into fashion, they're a fashionista, right? This nonsensical buzzword crap that our media keeps doing to make cutesy stuff out of stuff that's moronic, imbecilic, idiotic, and dangerous. What I'm about to tell you is about meeting the kitchenistas. And this is idiotic and dangerous. And the subtitle is New Yorkers Who Store Their Clothes in Ovens and Fridges. After a hard night on her feet as the manager of a busy downtown restaurant, Barry Muchaccio heads to her Nolita studio apartment, hangs off her, hangs up her coat, takes off her shoes, and puts them in her refrigerator. I have one closet and things were overflowing, so I started putting shoes in the fridge, says fashionable, she's fashionable, 26-year-old uh, whose wardrobe is heavy on black and consists mostly of skinny jeans and blazers. So I guess she's a fashionista and a kitchenista. And then I moved onto my cabinets where I now store my seasonal clothes, sweaters in the summer, t-shirts in the winter. Muchachio is not alone. Once a New York urban legend like crocodiles in the sewers or rent-controlled apartments with a view, people who store sweaters in their ovens do actually exist. In, in a town where square footage is at a premium, closet space is coveted. Takeout culture has made cooking at home practically obsolete for people, which means that more New Yorkers are discovering that their kitchens are teeming with unused nooks and crannies, namely refrigerators, ovens, cabinets, ideal for storing their cashmere sweaters and knee-high boots. You see how they make it sound so cutesy and happy? Here we go. Oh, my gosh. Who doesn't use their kitchen as a closet in New York, quips Design writer Jen Salgado, 37, who used, who used to store vintage leather handbags and canvas totes in her fridge. Yep, it was plugged in. Prior, so she keeps her stuff refrigerated. Prior to renting her country home, a four by four by four foot space in, uh, uh, Manhattan mini stores down the street, uh, from her 300 square foot, uh, one bedroom apartment in the West Village. Mike Nouveau, a downtown DJ with a shoe fetish never eats at home. He's a DJ, he's a guy, he has a shoe fetish. My kitchen is really just a wall of my 225 square foot apartment, he says. So he unplugged his refrigerator and in went his shoes. I have three rows of shoes in there, and they all fit perfectly. Zandla Blay, a 27-year-old fashion writer, decided to get rid of her refrigerator entirely. She has no refrigerator. I guess she's being green. I replaced it with a huge full-length mirror. <laughs> I get sorry, guys. And I got a small beverage cooler for my wine and Coronas. Okay. Uh, she did, however, keep her oven where she stores her jeans and knee uh, and heel-high shoes, high-heel shoes. I, I called up my sup, my super, and asked him to turn the gas off, she says, so I wouldn't accidentally burn my clothes. You, you might have other risks than that. And after asking me twice in Spanish, then once in broken English, if I was sure, he went ahead and agreed with my request. Blake contends that because ovens stay cool and dry, they're almost the ideal environment for keeping clothes. I just pop open the oven and my clothes are as fresh as they can be. 
One day, Jim Caruso, a 52-year-old singer and Broadway producer, was bemoaning his lack of storage space when he recalls, It hit me like a ton of bricks. My oven. All that was wasted space. So Caruso, who claims to be claims that the only things he cooks are ice and popcorn, he cooks ice, turned his oven into a sweater closet. You know those trays that go in and out? You pull the tray out and take your sweater and put the tray back in. It's great. The oven is made for clothing, except it's not. Mushachio also thinks there's something fun and even a little bit glamorous about her refrigerator closet. You open up the fridge and you see all your shoes laid out in this display case, she says. It's sort of like going shopping every day. Isn't that nice? But a girl has to eat, right? Well, I work in the restaurant industry, so I eat every meal out, says Mushachio. My kitchen is so small, it just doesn't make sense for me to cook in it. Blay, who uses her kitchen cabinets to store accessory shoes and look and lookbooks whatever those are, says that the only kitchen-specific items she keeps in her apartment are four wine glasses. Okay, she likes her little buzz. It was between food and my clothing, and clothing one, Blaze says. She says she has an active dating life, so you know there's a dinner every night. So her plan when the apocalypse comes is, I'm hungry, take me out to eat. Then, of course, there are strange reactions from her friends. I don't think it's weird, says Mishachio, but one time a friend stopped by and asked if she'd have a glass of water. She opened up the refrigerator and was like, what the hell is that? Nuvo says that people open up his refrigerator and start laughing. They think it's really funny. Cursaro uh, just hopes no, for no surprise parties. I pray nobody does me a favor and bakes me a surprise cake. I don't need to know what broiled cashmere smells like. And that's the end of the article. Um... I'm sure there's a chuckle or two out there, and I'm sure some of you are shaking your head and you have your your face in your hands right now, and I'm sure some of you are just going, oh my God, what is wrong with these people? But you also might be wondering why I read that on the air. Folks, these are the upper echelon. These are trendy people. These are people with cashmere. What do you think is going to happen to these people if New York City gets cut off of a food supply? For even a week. These people are more at risk than the poor people. The poor people on food stamps, they take their food stamps to the store, and at least they have some food in their house, at least a couple days worth. You know, you paid for it and I paid for it, but at least they got some. These people don't have any food in their house at all. This is what our culture has built today. We have people at the bottom end of our society, the absolute bottom, who are so dependent on the government that if the money ever dries up, they lose the few things that they have. They have a house paid for by government. They have health care paid for by government. They have cell phones paid for by government. But then we swing to the other end of society, the opposite rung of society, the upper class people that live in Manhattan, that have their little two and three hundred square foot trendy apartments that cost them thousands of dollars a month for the space that I have in my office in half of my living room. Even though my house is a $120,000 house. And they have no food. They have zero prep. They have nothing. And they live inside of a city with eight million people that is a powder keg waiting for disaster. That's why I read that story. I know it sounded funny. I wanted it to sound funny a little bit. Hopefully I did a good job uh, uh, reading it. 
And I, I really want you to start getting a sense for the way things are out there right now. I know sometimes the media stories and the political stories and stuff are not the stuff that some of you guys like. You like me to stick to the practical or the tactical, right? And I do a lot of that. But we have to look at a lot of what's going on right now. On top of all this, what we're seeing is we're seeing more and more um, calls for state sovereignty and state independence and for states to assert their authority. And before I go kind of segue into this, I want to ask you a question right now. And I want you to, uh, to answer this for me. And that question is, is health care a right? Let me ask you that again. Do people have a right to health care? Let me, let me give you an out. Do people have a right to life-saving care? And do they have a right to ongoing care? So, in other words, if somebody's going to die in this country, would you say that they have a right to be treated and prevented from dying if such can be done? On the other side of things, do people have a right to routine medical care? And if you're not sure where to cut the line, you ask yourself, where does the line get drawn in the sand? Where do we say that, okay, the guy's been shot, he's on the street, that he's been taken to an emergency room, he has a right to have medical uh, help there trying to save his life. We have somebody that has a headache and wants Tylenol and doesn't have money for Tylenol. Do they have a right to the Tylenol? Where's the line in between? Where do we? Because I'll tell you what, I do believe that in this country, specifically with our capabilities, if you're dying and you're taken to the emergency room, you should be given care. And you are. And the more critical your condition, the faster you get care, regardless of whether you can pay or not. And that is a fact. And if it wasn't, if it happened to one person, if one guy showed up at an emergency room with a gunshot wound to the stomach and sat in the emergency room and died, it would be on every TV network over and over and over again. But somewhere in the middle, we have to say, where we believe it stops being a right and becomes a privilege. Right? And what I mean by privilege isn't like you're, in, you're blessed to have it, but that if you want it, it costs you something. So it's important that we answer that question for ourselves if we're going to look at this issue of states' rights and how it's trying to be turned into something racist. And it really is, and it's disgusting. I'm reading now from an article published at uh, CBS News, and it is by an idiot. And the idiot's name is, let's see, Sean Wellens, Wellens, Wallens, whatever the hell his name is. He starts out, historical amnesia is as dangerous and disorienting for a nation as for an individual. So it is with the current wave of euphemism for states' rights, interposition, and nullification. The claim that state legislatures and special state conventions or referendums have legitimate power to declare federal laws null and void within their own state borders. The idea was broached in most biased, whatever word he's using there, in defense of the slave South by John C. Calhoun in the late 1820s and 30s, extended by Confederate secessionists in the 1850s and 60s, and then forcefully reclaimed by militant segregationists in the 50s and 60s. Each time it reared its head, it was crushed as an assault on a democratic government and the nation itself. Uh, Abraham linked words, the essence of anarchy. I'm not even going to read the rest of this. What I'm just going to tell you is that right now they're saying things like states standing up against health care reform and taxation and things like that all fall under the same federal supremacy that things like um, civil rights violations and slavery fell under. I, I want to give folks a real brief 
history slash civics lesson right now on how this whole thing works and, and the reality behind it and the very simple, easy to understand constitutionality of this entire situation. Federal supremacy exists. The federal government has supremacy when two laws are in conflict, if both of those laws are constitutional, and only if both of those laws are constitutional. Further, the federal government is not charged with powers to improve things, to make things better. They're giving a very uh, short list of things that they're actually supposed to be doing. And the chief charge of the federal government is to ensure the blessings and liberties of freedom to the people of the United States through ensuring that their rights are not violated by the states, and that is the place for federal supremacy. In other words, if the state of Texas says, we're standing up in our sovereignty, and we're passing a law, and that law says that Jack Spierko can no longer publish the Survival Podcast, and anything agitational like that can no longer be published in print or video or media inside the state of Texas. Well, that would clearly violate um, the, the, the right of freedom of press and the right of freedom of speech. Those are in conflict with constitutional liberties. And it's at that point the duty of the federal government to step in and provide those liberties. We ended up at a point where we decided as a nation that slavery had to go. And if we took slavery out of the Civil War, and we can't, unfortunately, but if we could have, the South was right without that issue. With that issue, the North was right, because you cannot enslave another human being. That is just ethically immoral. It's wrong, and it should never be done, and this nation should have never done it. But when we got to a point where we decided that we were going to make that happen, the southern states said that they had a right under uh, state supremacy to go ahead and continue on with that practice. Once we got to a point where we said, as a nation, we are going to recognize people of color as equal citizens, that they're going to have status, and they're going to be entitled to the same freedoms and liberties, which, yes, should have been done from the beginning. But once we got to that point, then it became constitutionally the federal government's duty to ensure that liberty. Because the state can't interfere with the liberty. All right? But conversely, the federal government's not supposed to be trampling on a liberty. And there's a very clear amendment to the Constitution. It's the 10th. And it says the powers that are not given by the Constitution to the federal government resides with the states and the people. Which means unless the Constitution specifically states that the federal government's supposed to do something, they're not supposed to do it. And if it's not there, then the power lies with the state. And the state can do things the federal government cannot. That's state supremacy. They both have supremacy in two entirely different worlds. Well, you're about to see this come to a head. Because more and more people in this country are realizing that that is indeed the case. Because we have this thing called the Constitution. And while it's written in some very eloquent language, it's very understandable language. It's very easy language to understand. It was written that way intentionally. So that the common man could read it and understand it and feel good about it. Because the new government knew that they needed the backing of the people that just fought for their freedom. That's why it's written that way. So... What you're going to see in the future is more and more state sovereignty come up. And you're going to see full court press from the liberal media about how every time this comes up, they want to throw it back to slavery and they want to throw it back to civil rights. Let's look at the civil rights movement. People tell me that's the one thing the government did right, Jack. Look what they did. The government screwed it up in the first place. Let's take it back to this guy who talks about John C. Calhoun in the 1820s and 30s that brought up states' rights. And that allowed slavery to exist all the way up to the Civil War. Do you know who made the decision to allow slavery to exist up to the Civil War? Was it the southern states exercising that sovereignty? No, it was federal government 
with a Supreme Court ruling that said, in fact, that was the case. Moving on to the civil rights movement, we had a position where we had said for over a 100 years now that these people are citizens of the United States of America. We had southern states, and a few that weren't quite so southern, being quite oppressive in their treatment and denying these people their rights as citizens of the United States. Of course, federal supremacy applies. Because the Constitution, as Barack Obama says, is a document of negative liberties. I agree with him on that. In that it tells the federal government what they can't do to you, but does not tell the federal government what they must be doing for you. That is the point. That is the point. And anything that the Constitution forbids the federal government from doing, it also forbids the state from doing, because the citizens... The citizens' uh, sovereignty exists throughout the nation. It's that simple. How the hell is this related, you're thinking right now, to the idiot that keeps her shoes in her oven? How is this related to the lady that gets free medical care and a cell phone and no-shows her appointment? How is this related to the government bureaucrat that tells my wife and her medical practice they have to spend their money and their time to send reminders to people that paid nothing for care, didn't schedule their own appointment, and then didn't show up. And have still not called to reschedule. How is it all related? It's completely related. Because the fact that we've lost touch with the foundational principles of our country is why these things exist today. If the person in Manhattan understood their power and their rights as a citizen, Instead of relying on the giant government pit that is New York City, they wouldn't be keeping their cashmere sweaters in an oven. If the person at the other end of society on Medicaid understood their rights and sovereignty as a citizen, and the fact that they have enough power to make what they want in their life occur, they wouldn't take the cell phone or the Medicaid, and they would be in a much better station in life. The safety net, as they cause it, has created dependence, systemic dependence, from one end of society to the other. The middle class are dependent on the wealthy. The wealthy are dependent on the government. I know you don't think the wealthy are dependent on the government, but they are. Because the government creates a society where a wealthy person can be relatively useless. And as soon as the government is gone and not there to make being useless acceptable... The wealthy person's wealth doesn't matter anymore. Because that lady that says, I know every night's a date night, so there's a dinner every night, so why do I need to cook at home? Right? <laughs> it's the law-abiding society. It's the police on the street. It's, it's the, 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 the working man that works out there and makes it safe. When we take away that infrastructure around that system, that, that rich person is completely lost. And that poor person is completely lost. And everything that's actually owned, that's valuable, is owned by the people in the middle. And that's you and me. And we better understand our own individual sovereignty. We better understand our sovereignty is individual human beings. That's one type of sovereignty that we have. And it comes with certain rights and responsibilities. And that's one thing we also have lost touch with in this country. When you have a right, it has a concurrent responsibility. Let me explain. You absolutely... Have a right, if you purchase property, to own that property 
and within the laws and reasonable standards of your state and nation to do whatever you want on that property. That is a right. Concurrently, you have a responsibility that anything that you use that property for that while legal is also dangerous, such as you house venomous snakes in your home, and you have whatever legal ramifications taken care of, you need to do that, that you also make sure that that facility is secure so that those venomous snakes don't escape your property and do harm to your neighbor, or say, just to be even you know less dramatic, if you have a great big boa constrictor, and it gets out of your house and eats your neighbor's cat, you're liable for damages, as long as you have not taken appropriate and reasonable things to make sure that that snake was secure. If a tornado blows your house down and the damn thing escapes, well, then that's an accident. That's an act of God, quote-unquote, right? But if you just let the snake crawl around your house and it gets out, then you're liable for the damage it does. Right to own the snake, responsibility to ensure that the snake is safely kept. So we have that in individual sovereignty. We also have sovereignty as citizens of the state that we live in and we have residence in. So I have a certain level of sovereignty as a citizen right now of the state of Texas. I've lived here long enough. I pay the state that they're due. And I make a contribution to the state through the business enterprises that I have here. And everybody else that lives around me pretty much has that as well. This is where people lose it. The individual sovereign rights as human beings, before we get to the state, before we get to the federal citizenship, the human right trumps everything. The more government involved, the less supremacy. So my individual right as a human being trumps anything that Texas does within the boundaries of our law and our state and federal constitutions. I hope that makes sense. When we move on to federal supremacy, right? federal law exists to ensure my first right at the other end, my sovereignty as an individual. That's its purpose. That's its function. And we have absolutely, fundamentally, lost touch with that reality. Now, how does this you know, pertain to survivalism and preparedness? This might be the most important thing I've ever told you. Let this sink deep in your head. If you're working or driving or you know, doing something else, pause a second. Listen to this. Saying something isn't true, even creating an environment where it appears not to be true, doesn't change the fact that it is true. That is probably the most important words that I've ever uttered to you on the Survival Podcast. That individual sovereignty that you have, your individual rights, your individual responsibilities that concurrently go with those rights, no matter how much the state does to emasculate you, to take away those rights, to pin down those rights, to make you feel like you don't need those rights, to make you feel like you don't have those rights, to make you feel oppressed, or to make you feel somewhat empowered by being given something. Doesn't change the fact that they're there, doesn't change the fact that they exist, and doesn't change your ability to exercise them. No matter what the state or the federal governments do, those rights exist for you. The most important part of them isn't the rights that exist. It's the responsibilities that go with them concurrently. So let's start out with some of the rights that we'll all agree on. And I think you'll see that how important this show may really be today that I'm doing. The first right that everybody thinks of when I say that all men are created equal, 
and have the right to what? Life. You have a right to life. Does anybody out there think for one minute that I don't have a right to live, or that you don't have a right to live, or that your neighbor doesn't have a right to life? I think we'd all say, I think from Democrat to Republican, liberal to conservative, progressive, you name it, everything but, uh, I guess the out and out, you know, fascist or communist stuff, the Supreme Man says, some people don't deserve to live, I'm gonna kill them because they disagree. But most people, 98% of the global population would believe in a right to life. That's why it's in the Declaration and the Constitution. A right to life. Because it's a universal concept. It's a human concept. What goes with your right to life? What, remember I said all rights have concurrent responsibilities? Well, one of your responsibilities, if you want to live, is not to kill yourself. Right? You, you, to, to take reasonable precautions with that life. You know, to not go out and try to wrestle a grizzly bear. You'll probably lose. They're bigger than you. You know, to not jump off a building. If you jump off a building, you've abdicated your responsibility, and you lose your right to life. You lose it whether or not there's a law against it or not. No act of Congress can prevent you from dying when your body impacts concrete from 50 stories. It's not going to happen. You're going to make a big splat, you're going to be dead. Why? You did not stay uh, true to your responsibility. But let's look at it from a preparedness standpoint. If you want to live, you have to eat. Well, it's your responsibility to procure food for yourself. It's your responsibility to understand that food is not always going to be available and make sure that you have some food available for you. See how you can use this podcast today, folks? Those people that are real diehard libertarians, diehard conservatives, right? either one, that say that people need to have these rights and it's important that they have these rights, Let's talk about the responsibilities that go with them. And it leads you directly to preparedness. There's no other place you can end up other than in a preparedness mindset. If you have a right to live, you also need to drink. Since you need to drink, one of your responsibilities to live is to make sure that you procure for yourself a means to provide yourself water. Does that make sense? With the right to life, you must at least make sure that you have water and food. You also must procure for yourself shelter. And procure for yourself in the future, if a shelter fails, another plan of action. You also need to breathe. But that one, pretty much, if you can't breathe, you're going to die. So unless somebody denies you of your right to air by choking you, or the planet's oxygen dissipates to zero, in either of those situations, that one kind of takes care of itself. But when it comes down to it, by having the right to life, you have a responsibility to ensure for yourself food, water, and shelter. Pretty interesting. Note that since this is a sovereign human right, that the government's role is to protect it, but not to provide it. It is that simple. It really is that simple. Because it's your individual sovereign right as a human, you're responsible for it. Government protects it. If the government issues you a right, then the government becomes responsible for providing it. Very, very simple. What is our next right? Liberty. We have a right to liberty. To have liberty, what must we have? Number one, we must have an awareness of the things that threaten liberty. So if you want liberty, you have a responsibility to be aware of threats to your liberty. If you have if you have a right to liberty, then you have a responsibility 
to object to infringements upon that liberty. In other words, if your liberty means that you want to be able to drive down my road every day, and I park my car in the middle of that road so that you can't get through there anymore, and that is a public road and you should have a right to it, right? That's not my private road that I built. It's a public throughway, and I've just done it because I don't like you. Then you have to object. Now, hopefully you're smart. You don't shoot me or punch me in the head. You contact authorities who then come in and protect your right. But if you don't object to it, then your liberty truly has not been infringed. Because you've abdicated your responsibility that goes along with that liberty. Are you feeling a little uncomfortable, folks, today? Are you starting to realize how responsible we all are for ourselves in all of these things? Are you starting to realize that holding up a sign or calling somebody on the phone or being mad doesn't really add up to the action necessary to ensure your rights? If you are deprived of your liberty illegally, because you haven't violated anybody else's rights, that you have a responsibility to procure your own liberty. Pursuit of happiness. The three universal ones. We have a right to pursue happiness. Now, if pursuing happiness means making sure your children stay alive for you, that all of those, those responsibilities, food, water, shelter, you have a responsibility until your children come to such age where they get the rights and responsibilities for themselves to make sure you do that for them. If your pursuit of happiness is to sit out in the woods all day long and not do a damn thing for anybody, as long as you take care of your responsibilities to ensure your liberty and your life, no one should have a problem with that. That means that you're not living off of somebody else. See, our Constitution and our Declaration are some of the most brilliant documents ever written. The problems in America have absolutely nothing to do with the system at our core. They have to do with ignorance of that system, and they have to do with the fact that people can't be bothered with it, and people don't follow it anymore. If we look at the constitutional role of the federal government and say, if we take everything that they're not constitutionally empowered to do away from them, our government would be roughly 25% or less the size that it is today. And that's a fact. That's an easy fact. And that's even keeping up a, a ridiculously oversized Department of Defense. And I think that we, we have a ridiculously oversized Department of Defense. You say, how can you be for cutting defense spending? Because we have to spend the rest of the world. You know all these great socialist utopias like Denmark and Holland and France and Spain and all these great European countries that you know could spend all their money on these social programs and even though they have a lot of social problems, they don't go completely broke? Do you know why they can do it? They don't have to defend themselves. We do it for them. We pay the bills. You know what? If you're France, you don't have to worry about being invaded right now. The United States will fix it. Germany will fix it. England will fix it. Italy will fix it. So they don't have to spend a lot of money on defense. They can spend it on all their socialist utopia crap. What if we stop spending money to defend all of these other countries and let them defend themselves the way that the, the world should work? Maybe they would have to cut back their social programs and maybe we would have a little bit more money to pay off our massive debt. But I don't want to be too much political today. I want to stick with you. I want to stay with what you can do. Well, what you can do is realize these, these three things that are fundamental 
to you. They're not your rights because they're part of our foundational documents. You don't have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness because Thomas Jefferson said so. Thomas Jefferson said so because you already did. And that dynamic is so important. And God, we're not teaching that to our children today. If you go out and ask the average American, do you have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? They'll tell you, sure I do, of course. And if you ask them why, you'll say because it says so. Instead of because I do. Because I'm human. That's the answer. That's the only right answer. I have those rights because I'm a human being and I currently occupy planet Earth. And those rights are intrinsic to me because in my creation, I got them. The fact that I'm here means that I have them. These rights do not come from government. Government is charged with protecting them. But I am charged first with protecting them. In the order of responsibility, it goes this way. You are first and foremost responsible for the preservation and protection of your rights. Your local government is then second in the line of chain of command. They are secondly responsible. When you are not capable or when a situation exists where you would have to operate outside of our legal system to defend your rights, it is first the charge of the closest government to you to protect your rights. It then falls back to the state and it then falls back to the federal government. And at any time that anywhere in between that train one of those systems of government, instead of defending the right of the individual, oppresses the right of the individual to life, liberty, or the pursuit of happiness. It is incumbent upon the next echelon of government to come in and interfere on the individual's rights behalf. It's so simple. It's exactly, exactly, it is exactly backwards the way that our children are being taught. And it is the mental Reasoning, the mental conditioning that causes people to do stupid shit, like keep cashmere sweaters in a refrigerator and have new food in their house and rely on tomorrow night's date night to bring a man into that woman's life to buy her dinner. That is one of the saddest things I've ever heard in my life. That a woman who is out working for herself, working hard, paying her bills would rely on the next date for the next meal. That is the most unempowering thing I have ever heard. And I think there's a lot of farm women out there that like to go find this girl right now and give her a good smack to the face, but then turn around and give her some coaching about having a little bit more self-respect for herself and a little bit better of an understanding. And that's what we need is citizens helping citizens come back in touch with that power. And if we do that, folks... I hear from people, man, I want people to listen to your show. I want people to get prepared. I want people to be prepared for disaster, whether it's a big one or a little one. If we take and understand this core philosophy, that along with the basic innate rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, we have concurrent responsibilities with go, that go with them, everybody will be a prepper. The minute you understand that, you can no longer depend on anybody else to ensure those three things. What you depend on somebody else to do, right? You have a right to life. So hopefully, if someone's shooting at your house, and you can't get a bead on them to fire back, and you're trying to defend yourself, and you're holding them off, but there's a bunch of them there, hopefully, as long as the phone still works, you can dial 911, and your city or county government will send law enforcement to help protect your right. 
right? But it's at first your responsibility to take basic precautions to ensure that life. Well, then you're going to have a means of defense. You're going to have a means of feeding yourself, right? And you'll also realize that your pursuit of happiness depends on not being a slave. Being a slave is a bad thing. Well, that's going to take care of debt now, isn't it? There's so many things that would be corrected if humans would just understand who and what they are, their own true power. It sounds metaphysical, but it's not. You see, here's the reality. Every day you wake up and you open your eyes and you look up at the roof over your head and you stand up and you start converting oxygen to CO2 at a higher rate than you were when you were sleeping, your heartbeat comes up a little bit and you start to move one foot in front of the other, you're in charge of yourself. You're in charge of where you go. You're in charge of what you do. No one in the world has more control over you than you. And that's why I always say, when it comes down to how you're going to plan, how you're going to prepare, my show will give you an outline and show you the way. And I've done so many shows on how to plan for bugging out, how to plan for bugging in, how to plan for your food storage, how to grow your own food, how to do this, how to do that, how to do the other thing. But when it comes down to it, what do I always tell you in the end? The same thing I'm going to tell you today. What you do matters. And your plan must be your own. You don't store six months of food because Jack Spear can store six months of food. If you think you need more, store a year. If you think you need less, store a month. You do what you believe in. You follow your compass. You follow your gut. You follow your values. And you make and own your own plan. Because if you do that, it's yours. You'll believe in it and you'll stick to it. And understand that it's your responsibility if you want your rights. And from now on, Whenever you find yourself saying, I have a right to, or you hear somebody saying that people should have a right to, I want you to ask yourself a couple questions. One, I want you to ask yourself, is that true? Do I have a right to Tylenol at no cost to me? Do I have a right to life-saving medical care if I've been shot and I've been brought to an emergency room? Somewhere... We go from not a right anymore, and then somewhere we go back to, yeah, that's a right. So is that right or right in the first place? If it is, then what responsibility of the individual goes concurrently with that right, and what must that individual do to uphold that responsibility? And here's the beautiful thing. There are right answers, and they aren't found in a book. The real world gives you real feedback. Like I said, if you want your right to life, you can't jump off a building and then claim your right to life. Probably not your pursuit of happiness either. And if you should survive the fall, you're probably going to lose that right to liberty for a while. Why? You've abjugated the responsibilities that go with those rights. So ask yourself from now on. every. I want you to make it. This is so important. I know it doesn't sound like preparedness to some of you. God, you've got to get this. Every time, from now on, you ever think about a right, ask yourself what are the concurrent responsibilities. And when you want to know how to teach your children so that they'll grow up with a prepper mindset, how they'll stay out of debt, etc., that's all you have to do. Don't lie to your children. Tell them what their rights are. And tell them that some of their rights don't come until they're 18. Because somebody else has the responsibility. In other words, why doesn't a 12-year-old have the right to not go to school because somebody else has the responsibility of putting a roof over their head and ensuring that that 12-year-old is educated. 
So he might go to homeschool, but somewhere he's going to get an education in this country. Because someone else has the responsibility at that point. At 18, if you haven't gotten out of high school yet and you want to quit, you can quit. Why? Because you are now responsible for yourself. The two go hand in hand. So when you have a kid going, it's not fair, tell them it's completely fair, here's why. Don't be afraid to use adult language with children. And I don't mean the words, you know, the one word I use today. What I mean is adult terminology. Don't be afraid to say flat out, listen, Johnny, here's why you don't have a right to go fishing today. Because you don't have the responsibilities yet that go along with those rights. And one day you do, and my job as a parent is to raise you in such a way that when those responsibilities become yours, You'll understand them, and you'll value them, and you'll use them appropriately. And someday it'll be your responsibility to pass that on to somebody else. And I'm going to do the best jam job I can as your parent. And I promise you, one day, when you're responsible for yourself, I'll honor your choices and decisions even when I disagree with them. But for now, for now, they're my responsibilities, so it's my rules. And parents, some of you are hard asses. Be flexible with your kids. Sometimes what they want to do isn't that big a deal. Cut them a break once in a while. I bet you'll find an opportunity to cut them a break this weekend. So even after you teach them about responsibilities and rights and how they go concurrently, cut them a break and let them do something fun. And with that, I'll go ahead and sign off today. This is Jack Kirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler. It doesn't matter Cause it all gets spent